Hey there, and welcome to Upfront, a podcast that features conversations with Connecticut-based top performers who represent the very best in their field and how they are making an impact in their industry and here at home in Connecticut. Thanks for listening. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Upfront. It's so nice to have you back here with us. And if this is your first time, welcome aboard. I hope you have enjoyed the first season of Upfront. And, you know, when we set out to do this podcast, the idea was really simple. The idea is to feature some of Connecticut's top business and community leaders who are doing great things in their role. But more importantly, we want to dive in and learn a little bit more about the person and how their daily habits, choices, and decisions have led them to where they are now. What time do they get up in the morning? What's their leadership style like? What kind of values have their parents taught them? And so much more. In other words, we wanna find out what makes them tick and how they got to be the person they are today. Each of our guests has an amazing story to tell. And along the way, we have gotten some great advice that we can perhaps use in our own lives or careers. I know I certainly have picked up some great things from our guests. And that is what this episode here is all about. It's a wrap up of our first season and features some of my favorite bits from our guests. We've had some very accomplished people on the show that range from leaders in professional sports and family businesses to local parishes, the restaurant business, and more. So kick back and enjoy this upfront wrap-up that features all of our guests and some of my favorite bits from their episode. Here we go. Jason Jakubowski is the CEO of Connecticut Food Share, which is the largest nonprofit organization serving the needs of Connecticut's food insecure. It's a huge job that impacts so many people's lives. And if you ask me, I say it's noble work. And I really applaud Jason and all of his team for all the great things they do for our community. So when Jason and I connected, we spoke about his upbringing, his life here in Connecticut, politics, his career path, and so much more. But two things I wanted to hear from him were about, one, something that he's failed at, and what was the lesson? And secondly, what kind of advice would he give his younger self? So much of everything we do is is focused on success, right? Um, but yeah, you yeah. know, everybody's sort of afraid of the F word, right? Failure. Um, and so this sometimes could be a, a, a tough question. But um, do you have a favorite failure of yours? And by that I mean uh, something you failed at, you learned from, and, and something you thought you were so sure about, but it didn't quite work out. And what was what was like the lesson from that? Oh yeah, look, absolutely. I, I, um, so you know, I, I was the, the 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 New Britain kid. I, I grew up in, in in New Britain. I was this young prodigy that got elected to the city council when I was 21. Um, I was this young phenom that was destined to be to be mayor of uh, of New Britain, and I I ran for for mayor in uh, in 20 in 2005, and. Um, 
I, I actually lost by a couple hundred votes. I mean, I was, you know, nobody ever thought I was going to lose. I was guaranteed to win. I'm going, everything is set up for this. But, um, you know, I was running against a, a, a popular incumbent and um, he had beat me by a, a, a couple hundred votes. Um, you know, I remember, you know, initially you're sitting there and you're like, oh, my God, you know, everything that my life has led up to at this point is now just, you know, just just completely uh, gone down the tubes. And, and what am I going to do? Um, the great thing was there's so many people there to, 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 to pick me up. And now, you know, 16 years later, you look back in, in, in retrospect, I learned more from that experience. Uh, and I am a better person from that, uh, from that experience, uh, than, than I would have been had I, uh, had I actually won that election. Um, it, I wouldn't be where I was today. I would have completely set me in a, in a, in a different trajectory. So, um, so that's that's one thing. I mean, that that's one concrete example. The other one is, I mean, I, I have five kids, and when you have when you have kids, whether it's one, five, twenty five, uh, you're going to fail all the time. And and uh, I think that, that having having children has certainly humbled me. Um, I think that uh, you know I look back at at the, you know the 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 arrogant kid that I was when I was a you know twenty one year old councilman just out of college. Um, I'm definitely much more, I think, um, down to earth uh, today, uh, and I do think that uh, I, I give my uh, my wife and my kids all the credit in the world for, um, you know, for reminding me that I'm just just another guy, uh, you know, uh, that 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 sometimes sometimes you do the right thing, sometimes you don't. I mean, you just and you, you find a way of, uh, of 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 moving on. If you could give your 25-year-old self some advice, knowing what you know now, what would you say to yourself? Lighten up. Absolutely 100%. I would tell them to, 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 to have more fun, to lighten up, that, that, that life isn't so serious, that um, you know, in, in, enjoy your friends, enjoy your family. Um, it, it's, you know, you're just one very, very small piece of a, of a very large, uh, of a very large machine in this world. And that, um, don't take yourself so seriously. If you enjoy tea, then chances are, you know, the Bigelow tea name. Cindy Bigelow is the third generation president and CEO of family owned Bigelow Tea, which is the US market leader of specialty teas that produces more than 2 billion, that's right, 2 billion with a B, tea bags annually. When Cindy and I connected, she shared her childhood memories of tea tasting in the family kitchen, her ambition to one day run the company, and memories of her grandmother, Ruth Bigelow, who founded the business in her New York City apartment. So when it comes to leadership, what's her style like? And what kind of advice would she give tomorrow's women leaders? What would you say that your leadership style is like? Very direct, very feisty. Um, I really try very hard to always look through the eyes of everyone that I work with, whether it's in the business, out of the business, professional or personal. Um, I recognize the value of team. I recognize my need for team. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope my team knows how much I need them. But 
Also, there are times when I have to make a decision. I try to keep that rare if it is going against uh, the, the team's thought, but I try to explain that through if that is the case. So I just really believe in team. I believe in um, uh, exceptional uh, communication in the sense if you think you can communicate, you can probably communicate a little bit more. Uh, I, I believe in never settling, uh, for sure, never settling, never compromising. Um, and that's how I drive the business forward. And a lot of vice presidents, when they come in here and they are on my executive team, that's a big transition for them because it's all about the metrics, the metrics, the metrics. Mm -hmm. And a big low metrics are important, but it's not the driver. It's about ethical business growth. It's about bringing 400 people along on a journey where they enjoy what they do. Maybe not every day and maybe not enjoying me every day. But overall, I want it to be a place where they, they want to walk in that door. Mm. And that's not easy because I'm not the only leader here. There's others. So it's constant communicating, constant coaching, constantly re-self-evaluating yourself, asking them to reassess themselves, and just recognizing that as a leader, there's huge responsibility and uh, it isn't all about the metrics. For young women today, do you have any advice for tomorrow's leaders? who are, are women looking to be leaders, what would you say to them? Well, um, I say that uh, you got a, a lot of great skill sets, as I would also say to males, but you got a lot of great skill sets to make you a wonderful leader. And all of us have some skill sets that we are, or, or characteristics that we need to work on and what might get in the way of our leadership skills. So to me, it is how do you make the room better um, how do you make a project better? Um, how do you drive a business forward? Those are the leaders that are going to rise at the top and using, I think, some natural skill sets, um, I think will really help you in that journey. Uh, the other thing I think are very good for, for women and for men, but for women is I think we're very good at scheduling. And I know for me being a mother, uh, and being able to schedule and being able to fit things in like a shower in the middle of a, a major issue of a, a sourcing problem. That compartmentalization and that scheduling is very critical, um, I think also uh, for a leader. And I think women are, are, are also very, very good at that. So it's using your skill sets uh, that were natural, developing those skill sets and also looking at the characteristics that get in the way of, of team and, and uh, you know, and. And, and driving a business forward, you know, ask yourself what are those that you have and how can you how can you really work on reducing those? Jim Koplick is the president of Live Nation Connecticut. If you've been to a concert here, then chances are Jim and his group are responsible for bringing the act. He's worked with everyone from Lady Gaga and Van Halen to Tony Bennett, Frank Sinatra, U2, and hundreds and hundreds of more. His story is incredible. He was on the path to become a dentist like his father, but his passion of music took over. And that's what Jim's episode is all about, following your passion and dreams. When I asked Jim about failure, he talks about staying in your lane, and then we dive into his leadership style and what he would say to his younger self. I tried to put on, in 1983, I tried to put on a Connecticut State Fair. 
Connecticut doesn't have a state fair. They all go up to the Big E in Western Massachusetts. Yeah. And it's a wonderful business. It makes a lot of money. And I said to myself, you know what? I should, I can buy the talent really easily for the fair. I can hire a carnival to be at the fair. I can hire a petting zoo to be at the fair. So I figured this would broaden my business. So I decided I'm going to try doing this. And so I hired a petting zoo. I hired a, uh, a carnival. I brought, we used the Bridgeport Highlight Fronton as our concert venue. We used their parking lot as the fair area. And uh, I had Elvis Costello one night. I had Pat Benatar one night. I had a flock of seagulls one night. We put together a really nice schedule. But at the end of the day, I made no money. I actually lost money on, on the event because mm. I didn't know how to run a fair. My concerts did well, but the fair attendance really, really suffered. And what I realized is I don't know the fair business. It's a different business. I And the lesson I learned is don't stray from the things you know best because you'll see really how stupid you really are. Mm. I'm smart in one thing. I'm not going to try to be smart in anything else. I found something I'm good at. I'm staying with it. But I learned my lesson. Don't stray too far from your your, your path that you know best. And and I thought this was easy money. And I, I, I couldn't get out of bed the day after the fair. I was so depressed. And that's never happened before. And it's never happened since. What would you say your leadership style is like? Um, open, um, uh, not dictatorial. I, I many times think somebody else is making the right decision. I'll go with them if I, I, I like to, I'm very inclusive. Mm-hmm. I rarely make decisions myself uh, without other people talking to me about it. I have what I call my kitchen cabinet, my four, who I consider my four or five we have 50 people in my office, but my four or five people that I think are the smartest people, mm-hmm. I usually have a meeting with them over lunch uh, uh, and I talk to them about everything that's coming up and I listen to their thoughts. And I'm, I'm the one who makes the final decision, but often it's not the decision I thought I would make. So I think I'm very open-minded, I think is probably uh, uh, the way I manage. Very, And I want everybody to be just as open-minded. And, and as that type of leader, what would you say is your, your greatest challenge? Oh, uh, managing a know-it-all. Mm. It's very difficult managing a know-it-all. My style does not fit with a know-it-all yeah. because I will get in a fight with that person way too often because I won't say that I'm right, but I will always say to them, you're not necessarily right either, and you've got to listen. A know-it-all has one uh, a one-way street into their head. It comes from their brain out of their mouth. No matter what you say, never enters their ears or into the or their brain. Mm. And I can't stand know it all. If you could give your 22-year-old self or 18-year-old self, whatever it is, um, some advice, knowing what you know today, what would it be? Wow. Um, I think what I would what I would say is. Um, um, Go with your gut. Don't overthink anything. Usually your gut is right. And I find when people overthink things, they talk themselves out of something rather than into something. And I believe in gut. If you mention UConn, 
you probably think of basketball, championship after championship. And playing a starring role in that story of UConn women's basketball is Jennifer Rizzotti. She was there in the beginning of it all, winning the school's first NCAA championship title. From her days on the college court to coaching pro teams and the women's USA Olympic team, Jennifer Rizzotti is now the president of the Connecticut Sun, which is the women's professional basketball team that is affiliated with the WNBA. We talk about commitment, perseverance, and life growing up in a small Connecticut town, but two of my favorite parts of our conversation were about how athletes make great leaders and what inspires her on a daily basis. What would you say your leadership style is like in this role? Yeah. Honestly, I don't know that it's a lot different than it's been as a coach. Um, I'm very open and collaborative. Um, you know, I'm confident that I, ha- I will make the right decisions, but I like to get as much input and thought and collaboration from my staff before I make decisions. Um, I feel like, um, I have, again, I have a drive and a competitiveness to me, but I like to have fun. So I think I'm able to still create a really exciting environment in the office. Um, and most importantly, I let people do what they're good at. Mm. Um, you know, I hired a great VP of, of business operations, Amy Shear, who's been in pro sports for 30 years. Like she knows things that I won't learn in the next 30 years because she's been entrenched in it for, for decades. So she, I let her do her job. I let her lead the people underneath her. I let her give me guidance on, you know, how to to present something to a sponsor or how to market something or, you know, how we're going to sell tickets. Um, so I think it's just kind of always who I've tried to be is, is hire really talented, good, diverse, energetic, selfless people, and then let them do what they're good at. So um, I, feel, I feel really positive with the team I've been able to put together. What inspires you? Like, where do you find inspiration? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I think... Like I'm, I'm, I would say like, for me, I look at things as like, where's the challenge, right? Like, where's, (laughs) where's the opportunity for me to be competitive? Mm. Um, that's kind of how my mind works. So if there's something that allows me to do that, then I'm inspired. So, you know, if I, this morning I had a, you know, sponsorship meeting, uh, I had to drive up to Boston for it. And it's like that it's like that rush of like preparation to make sure I know what I want to say, to sell our product, to showcase who we are, to share my vision. You know, you have this rush of adrenaline to do it, you do it. And then you walk out of the office and you just feel like, you know, I crushed that. Like I got across what I wanted. It's kind of like when I was coaching, it was like a recruiting presentation. Like I had this kid and their parents sitting across from me how do I tell them, you know, GW or Hartford is the place for them to come and play? Yeah. How do I get to convince them to come play for me? Now my competitiveness is, you know, how do I get these these companies to want to partner with us and showcase our product and be a part of what we're building and um, give us a chance to like really, um, you know, 
you know, embrace the, the, the challenge of like uh, giving our players this platform, right. To, to be more than just athletes. Like the WNBA is so special. These women are so special. Um, who wants to partner with us to let us tell their story. Right. And so there's this competitiveness um, rush for me to be good at that, to, mm. you know, to sit down and, and look at, you know, our, our business plan and, and say, here's where we can be better. And, we're going to sell this many tickets and we're going to drive this much revenue through sponsorships and we're going to do this many community events every day. And so I've really challenged my staff to have, you know, a level of accountability and set goals for themselves that they can measure themselves on. And so I try to do that for myself too. And and that really, for me is like, in, like that's just how I tick yeah. is when I know I can bring my competitive drive to something and and to surround myself with people that are really good at what they do because i'm not good at everything i don't know a lot about the business but i know that i know how to to share the vision and i know that i know how to be passionate and i know how to be competitive and so i can bring those qualities to almost every aspect of what i do on a daily basis and and i and that inspires me it, it I, every day is different you know coaching it was kind of the same Every day with this job, every day is different. I love that. There's a challenge to it, um, and I'm learning. I'm learning something new every day, and so I'm, I'm definitely inspired by this this new world that has been opened up to me. Nathan Grube is the tournament director of the Travelers Championship, that is the professional golf tournament on the PGA Tour that comes to Cromwell, Connecticut, every year. Some of the best players in the world play in this tournament, but it's so much more than golf. It's about community and helping to raise funds for nonprofit organizations throughout the state. So how does he do it? What are his daily habits? What keeps him going? How does he disconnect? And what is his advice on failure? Take us, take us through your daily routine, not as a tournament director, um, but what kind of habits does, does Nathan Group have? Are you up early? What time do you get up in the morning? Well, so uh, before I say this, I, I have always been uh, somebody who loves getting up early in the morning. I mean, from like the time that I was a kid to, you know, when I had a paper route to the time in college, I was always the, the, the kid who would go to bed early and wake up early. So <clears throat> I just need to say that, that like I get up at four. I love getting up in the morning. Uh, I, I feel like it's the only part of the day that I can actually truly quote unquote own from the standpoint that mm. like I'm setting my agenda. So my alarm goes off at four, um, have to feed the dogs, have to let them out to pee. And I have to feed the guinea pigs because they scream. If you've ever walked by a hungry <laughs> guinea pig, they make the loudest noises. So the dogs okay. get fed, the guinea pigs get fed. Um, and then I have to have about 24 ounces of coffee every morning. Like I live off of good coffee, love it. Um, I, I am an absolute, we could spend an hour and a half just talking about coffee, but, okay. um, I'll have coffee and then I will, uh, then I'll go and work out, um, from about five to six. And then I'll usually be, you know, online seven, six forty-five, seven. Um, I definitely think that my, my mornings are my, my best times. Um, so I guess if you were to say, what's your habit? I mean, that's, that's pretty much my habit. I mean, I love having a bowl of oatmeal with strawberries in my coffee every morning. Like that is like, I am addicted to that. And then that'll probably run for about six, eight months. And then 
I'll have three eggs and a banana and that'll run for like six months. And then <laughs> I, I have some diet restriction issues. I'm, I have some food allergies. So I have to be, you know, kind of very, that's why I'm very like segmented with my food, but um, no mornings are great, but I swear if you call me after like eight 30 at night, I am useless. I am an absolute waste of space. People know that everybody who works with me knows that, Oh, don't call them at night. It's not going to go well. Like you're not going to get a good decision. You're going to get, um, you're going to get a very tired voice. And, uh, I run my hands through my hair at night. My hair gets big. I, I just don't look good. Like it, it's, <laughs> so I always tell people like, call me at six. AM versus 6 PM. You're going to get better. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, personally, that's, uh, you know, that's kind of, I would say that's my, my routine. I'm great in the morning, not so good at night. Okay. And, and you have a lot going on. I mean, I know like what it takes to put a tournament on and be behind the scenes and all of that stuff. How do you, like, what do you do to disconnect from that? Do you just turn the phone off, just close the email? I mean, how do you break away? Uh, I guess the short answer is you don't. Um, so I would say the last, the last 90 days headed into a tournament, you, you need to understand, and people who want to get into this industry need to understand, it, it doesn't shut off those last three months. And then the last two months, it gets worse. And the last month, it gets even worse. And the last, you know, two, three weeks, like you, you have to be willing to turn yourself over to everything because there's just not enough time in the day. Like it just doesn't work. And, and honestly, there's a lot of people who get into this industry that, that will intern with us that'll be like, oh, there's, I don't, I don't want this life. Like, there's no way I'm going to do this. And that's totally great. And there's other people that say, oh, we get it. <clears throat> you know, this is how the event industry works. But it does ebb and flow, right? Like the last 90 days leading into it, you just, everything starts to creep uh, in May, you know, the last eight weeks, it's, you know, you work on weekends and it's just, it's constant. And you just, you can't, you can't turn it off. But post tournament, we, I mean, our staff knows this. We try very, very hard to have forced, kind of what you're talking about, forced breakaway time, right? Like, hey, here's our hours. We're reduced hours. We're not going to bug you during this time. Like, we try very hard in, you know, July. There's a lot to finish up. But like August, early September, we try very hard to have some very clean barriers. Hey, we're going to let you recuperate physically, mentally, emotionally, because what you just went through was a lot and you need to be aware of it. Um, that you need to recover. And so we try really hard to put some parameters around things post-event to give people the chance to, to recover. I would say this, I would say, uh, well, kind of on that, that, that theme, one, don't be afraid to fail at stuff. Like, I mean, we failed at stuff. I, I mean, I failed at stuff personally, professionally, but it, I mean, something always came of it. You know, and I mean, don't be afraid to fail stuff like I'm going to go in and try to get fired. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. Right. I'm talking about there's new ideas there's something you want to try, like going about it in the right way, getting the support. But if it doesn't work out, I promise you, you learn something along the way. Right. You learn something along the way to get even to that failure point. So I don't know. My my, my last piece of advice, I guess what I would say with my my parents, you know, like I said, what they raised me with is. You know, just be able to lay your head on your pillow at night, whether it's professionally or personally or whatever, and just have that very, very honest moment with yourself going, okay, am I okay with how I did what I did today? And if you can say yes to that, like, you're gonna do some great stuff. You know, like you're, you're gonna be able to walk around with your head high. You're gonna be able to be proud of the product that you put out there. You're gonna be able to have, you know, some, some good stuff. So I don't know, I didn't mean to get all Dr. Phil, but. You know, that, that would be, that'd be my, my, my two cents. A life-changing experience set Reverend Dr. Leroy Perry on his path in life. 
You could say it was divine intervention or God's calling. Originally from Roanoke, Virginia, he earned his BA from Livingston College, his MDiv from Yale Divinity, STM and doctoral degrees from the New York Theological Seminary in New York City. Without question, he is an educated and accomplished pastor who currently serves as senior pastor to the St. Stephen's AME Zion Church in Brantford, Connecticut. In addition to his work as a pastor, Dr. Perry also serves as the director of the Fatherhood Initiative Program at New Opportunities in Waterbury, and he's a cultural ambassador for the Yale Center for Clinical Investigation. I really enjoyed my conversation with Reverend Perry, especially these two great stories he shared on family values and leadership. You had mentioned your, your father had worked on the railroad and, and your mom was a stay-at-home mom. Um, what kind of values did your parents instill in you that you still carry with you today and apply? See, my father, my father was, he was a, he, he was a Navy man, mm-hmm. a railroad man. And he left school to take care of his mom. And uh, he went back to school after the service and got his diploma. So he would tell us how important that was. And um, he was he was a hard worker. So he gave all of us a work ethic. I mean, we were working when we were 12 and 13 years old. Either we were shining shoes. I was working at Woolworths. My brother's working at a catering house. Um, so he instilled that in us. And he instilled education. And, you know, he was a strong disciplinarian. So one day I, I got my report card from... Um, from Walt School, I think I might have been in the fifth grade, and I had all C's and one B, and I said, man, I don't want to take this card home to my dad, I said, because other kids got A's and B's, I wonder what he's going to say, and he's always stressing, you know, education, so when he looked at the card, and he looked at me, he looked at the card again, and all he said to me was, when we brought you home from the hospital, the doctors didn't tell us that there was anything wrong with you <laughs> oh boy <laughs> so uh that was that was that was that was monumental for me because he he that was a message that i've carried all of my life and i and i thought about it i said other people can do well in school i one of my teachers looked at my life and said you're you're a late bloomer that that's your thing and then i thought about it and i said you know she's right i was never challenged I was never looked at as a real person in school, only with certain teachers. Yep. My father once said to me, uh, why are you sitting in front of the television and why are you always playing ball? Why don't you read a book? Now I respected my father and with a little fear and trepidation, I wanted to say in my mind, I was saying, well, what did, I, what did you read? I don't see you reading a lot of books. And so, I said in a nicer way, I said, Dad, so what books did you read when you were a child? He rattled off five books. He said, The Hardy Brothers. He said, The Knights of the Round Table, mm. Astro Perry, Jude the Obscure. And I'm saying, oh, my God. I went right down to the library, Silas Bronson Library, and got every single book that he said he read, and I read them. 
That's why I think dads are so important in this development of where our youth are today. As a leader, what would you say that your 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 greatest challenge is? Getting up in the morning. No, <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you. <laughs> I think the greatest challenge is is always been to uh, is is to some sometimes not be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Hmm. And I think that, that that's discouraging and um, and that, you know, when you when you see, for example, Black Lives Matter and then you think, oh, well, you know, it's going to get better and it doesn't. And then, you know, you see the disappointment in the eyes of moms or or people that, you know, you know, when you see people who go in the hospice and, you, and, and, you know, there is uh, you know that this is like. Like in New York, the, the, the hospital place was called Calvary. And I said, wow, what a name. Um, it's right near Einstein Hospital. Mm. But, and I, and I, every time I would go there to see the people, it's like, I don't have a message of hope. I really don't have a message of hope. But inside of me, there is that message of hope. And so I tried to reach deep inside of me to, to make sure, because it's different for every individual. Yeah. And I think it's that way in life. It's like, how do you, how do you, how do you bring this this message of hope um, to people? Lyman Orchards is famous for their apple pies, but they're also famous for being one of Connecticut's and the country's oldest continually family-run businesses. Founded in 1741, Lyman Orchards is much more than delicious pies. There's the Apple Barrel Farm Market, three world-class golf courses, Pick Your Own in the Orchards, the 1741 Pub and Grill, and so much more. John Lyman III is the Executive Vice President of Lyman Orchards and is a member of the eighth generation of the Lyman family that has been farming in Middlefield since that date of 1741. Running a farm, golf course, retail outlet, and so much more isn't easy. It's a lot of balls to juggle. So when you're in charge of it all, what kind of leadership style does John Lyman have? I, I tend to, um, I, I try to delegate and allow people um, to make the decisions, uh, to feel obviously that they're, they're, they're a key part of the operation. So. As much as I can, I'll try to stay out of the day-to-day. -day. Um, certainly, we'll talk more on a strategic level, on a, on a more uh, goal-oriented level, um, and teach. I mean, I'm at a point now in my career where I'm in a teaching role too, mm -hmm. um, taking the knowledge of I've had over you know 40 plus years and trying to teach the uh, the next generation um, in our workforce about things that you know. Uh, some of what I talked about, the things that you can't put on paper, you just have to learn and then, and then you, um, you, you, you hope with your employees that you, you, they have the skill set to being able to um, uh, react and, 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 you know, have the basics, but they don't have to be the experts, um, you know, they'll learn in a the job. So I try to allow 
that learning as well um, and, and be there in terms of help make decisions rather than uh, if, if, if we're not clear and sometimes you just have to make a decision and you have to move move forward and then but also recognize that maybe that decision has to be adapted or it wasn't the right one and you got to change um, and and the other is just be supportive of, of all the other uh, areas that I don't necessarily directly supervise but be you know almost like a cheerleader a little bit of you know encouraging people um, just just uh, you know empathize with what the challenges they're going through and, and just encourage them to say you know we can get this done and you're doing a great job and um, yeah so it's it, it's you know, I think over anyone starts in their career, they're more hands-on, they're much more uh, involved in it and learning to step away and allow others to do the job, uh, teach them, um, but be be t close enough that you can be there for, for, for help, for guidance, um, mentoring, so that you're not so removed that they, they feel like they're on their own and all you do is come in later and criticize. You, you know, I'm not one to come in and start criticizing because I recognize how hard it is and, and appreciate the work that goes into it because I did a lot of it as I was going through my career. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of stuff I didn't do, um, but recognize the skill and talent that others bring to the table. And, um, you know, mechanics, for instance, I'm not mechanically oriented, but we've had some really tremendously skilled mechanics over the years. And I just so much appreciate that skill. Um, so, you know, kind of, kind of a combination, um, but more importantly, not get in the way of allowing people to do their job and do it well. The Hummel Brothers story is the American dream, and it begins in 1933 when German immigrants William and Robert Hummel scraped together enough cash to purchase a bankrupt sausage kitchen. Fast forward to today, and Hummel Brothers is a thriving family business that is known for their delicious hot dogs and so much more. Eric Hummel is one of the third generation owners, and we talked about the importance of giving back to the community, why employees are like family, and much more. But when it comes to his daily routines and challenges as a leader, here's what he had to say. Do you have any special routines that you do that kind of keeps you balanced and centered before you tackle your day? I, I think the way I set up my days kind of kind of helps me into it. You know, I mean, mm. first thing I do when I walk in the door is grab my cup of coffee, and then then I'll go up to my office, fire up the computer. And then, like I said, I mean, you, we've all got a ton of emails that are that that are nothing and need to be deleted. You know, and then you've got to go through your pages and pages and pages of emails that are pertinent. And, you know, usually after I have my cup of coffee, that's when I kind of sit down and say, OK, let's get into these important emails now. Let's let's get back to all these people, um, you know. And like I said, then 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 come all the meetings and it's very regimented. I, I like to be a regimented person. I did graduate from military high school, so it, it's kind of stayed with me. That, that I like everything the same. I really don't like to vary all that much. But, you know, I find that helps me through my day. I, as I always say, I value consistency, right? <laughs> yes, 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 absolutely. But there, I mean, there are people that can, you know, they can bounce around and, and do, you know, a million things at one time. 
you know, I, I'm somebody that I need to set everything up in the way that I like it before I tackle it. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I, I, I got a sense of your leadership style. It's, you know, surrounding yourself with great people, letting people do their jobs without having to watch over their, their, their shoulders. Um, what would you say is your greatest challenge as a leader and, and how do you overcome it? Ah, challenge of being a leader. I, well, you know, I think it's, it's making sure, you know, like I tell our employees, my door is always open. You know, never think that you cannot come up to my, my office if you need me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's something I never really thought about, but, you know, as I guess as I get older, because I, I watched employees look at my father that way, you know, some employees have a fear of going to talk to a boss, but I let them know that, you know, we're a family business. We expect if there's something wrong, you come to us Yeah. and, you know, and, and that's some of the challenge is the ones that don't come up and talk to you, but you know that there's something going on. You know that there's something bothering them. And then I've got to go and kind of, kind of draw it out of them. You know, I, when, when you work with people, as long as I've worked with these people, you know, when somebody's having an off day, you know, I see you every day for how many hours I probably see you more than you, you see your husband and wife, mm. you know, by the time you get home, you know, how many hours are you with them before you go to bed? But, right. you know, I see the employees every day, you know, and, and you'll know if, if, if somebody's upset, if somebody's angry, if so, and even if they don't come to talk to me about it, I will go to them and ask, ask them flat, flat out, you know, what's, what's the matter? Nothing, nothing. What's the matter? I can tell. I know you well enough, you know, and finally you draw it out of them. So, you know, that's, that's one of the biggest challenges is when you have an employee that really won't come to you and, and say what's on their mind. Yeah. You know, you, you yeah. have to figure it out and you have to know your employees. It's so important. You know, you, you just can't pass them in the hall, you know, like they're people that just punch in and punch out. And, and that's all they are. You know, and I know there are companies that treat their people that way, but that's not that's not what we were taught. And that's not how we operate in our generation. That is not how we operate. So. I'll always take time to, to speak with employee if it's work related or personal related, you know, some people just need to get things off their chest and that's fine. You know, I have no problem taking part of my day to make sure an employee is okay. You know, I will never be too busy where I'm not going to take time for an employee that, that needs to see me. The name Max is synonymous with restaurant excellence here in Connecticut. The food, the service, and the overall experience is exceptional, and it's exactly what keeps people coming back time and time again. At the head of it all is Richard Rosenthal, the president and founder of the Max Restaurant Group. From his first restaurant job at McDonald's to getting an education in the kitchens of New York City and Newport, Rhode Island, Richard opened his first restaurant, Max on Main, back in 1986 in Hartford, Connecticut, and he hasn't looked back since. Today, the Max Restaurant Group has 10 successful restaurants and a catering company. We talked about crazy kitchen stories, finding your calling in life, and how the restaurant business is one of the toughest in the world, 
But one thing I really enjoyed was if Richard were to meet himself years ago, what kind of advice would he give to himself and why he would say, don't go into the restaurant business. If you could give your 25-year-old self some advice, knowing what you know now and all of the experience you have, what, what would you say to 25-year-old Rich? Don't go in the restaurant business. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you know, what, what's that, uh, you know, the, I don't remember who said it, but baseball's been very, very good to me. You know, the restaurant business has been good, has been very good to me, and it's been good to many people that work, you know, side by side with me. And But the 25-year-old me, you know, and, I've, and I've, I've had the pleasure of having, you know, people will call me and say, hey, my kid is getting out of college and he doesn't really want, know what to do. And he he thinks he wants to go in the restaurant business. And they ask, well, you know, will you talk to him or her? So I'll sit with that person. You know, it could be on the phone or it could be in person. And I start asking him some questions like, "What? why restaurant business? They go, well, you know, it looks good, but da da da. You know, some some ridiculous answer. I and I'll ask them, "Do you love food? Do you love wine? Do you love you know all this stuff?" And I'll get kind of you know you get different answers from different people, of course. Mm -hmm. But my advice is, you you have to do what you love. You know, your work has got to be your hobby. You know, and you got to find something that you really like. And if, if you're going to the restaurant business because you think it's a good business, it's the worst business in the world. You know, it's a, it's a seven-day, seven-night business. And it's, you know, I've compared it. It's different than most businesses because you are, you are a manufacturer and a retailer at the same time, which isn't very common. You know, if you want to go buy a beautiful sweater, you, you, you rarely buy it from the person that produces it. You buy it from someone who purchases it and puts it in their, you know, in their store mm -hmm. or today on online. But it's typically not the person that knit that sweater. And in the restaurant business, we buy raw ingredients. You know, we go to the farm, we go to the, our wholesalers, and we need to produce food. And then we have to serve it. And we have to serve it timely and we have to serve it hot. And all those things. So it's a, it's a tough business. You know, it, it kind of never ends. When most people go home at five or six o'clock from work, we're just starting our second day. We did mm -hmm. We already did the first eight hours at lunch. Now we're doing the second eight hours in the evening. So it's, you got to find something you really love. So if I was talking to the 25 year old young man or young woman, I'd say, this find something you love and do it. And don't listen to everyone that tells you it's a bad idea. So there we have it. That's a small taste of our show up front. I hope you enjoyed revisiting these conversations from some of Connecticut's business and community leaders. And we will be back in 2022 with more inspiring conversations with some more incredible people. I'm looking forward to sharing their stories with you. And if you have a guest you'd like to recommend for the show, get in touch. You can send an email to hello at mason23.com. I hope you have a happy holiday season and a very healthy and happy new year. We'll see you in 2022.